Hey, this is Mark Kassoff, and this is RPM 45. Jim Messina has done it all when it comes to making music. He's been a recording engineer, record producer, singer, songwriter, and guitarist. He was a member of Buffalo Springfield, the pioneering country rock band Poco, and the hit-making duo Loggins and Messina. And on this week's RPM 45, we talk about all of it. So all through high school, I had a band. We'd be paid 60 to 100 bucks and then divide that up between the five of us. And uh, gasoline was a quarter a gallon. Cigarettes were 25 cents, 30 cents in those days. So you get a sense of what prices was. You know, my first car was 75 bucks. Um, <laughs> so, you know, if you could earn, you know, 50 bucks on the weekend, uh, that's pretty good stuff. Pretty you know? good stuff for being in high school, for sure. I mean, you, on a weekend, you could earn enough money to buy a used car. <laughs> well, what did you get for 75 bucks? I'm just curious. I got a 1948 Chevrolet two-door sedan that had been painted frost white, <laughs> uh, some of all spray cans, and... Uh, I actually bought the car from Jim Webb, the songwriter's father, Bob Webb. Who, and Jim Webb and I went to high school together. He was a great ahead of me. And years later, not only did he sell me my first car, but he also he was a preacher. So he, he married me and my first wife. And Jim Webb married my wife's sister. So uh, you played throughout high school. You made some pretty good bucks doing it. And then what? In the 11th grade, when I was about 15, 16, a guy by the name of Larry Goldberg with Audio Fidelity wanted me to make an album. And I made this album. Uh, it was supposed to be what I would call a legitimate album, meaning that just the music would be on there. But by the time it was finished, they had other ideas. They wanted to call it Jim Messina and his Jesters, and the album was called Dragsters. And they had put all this friggin' dragster noises in the beginning and the ending of the songs. It just was... Oh, my God. Like, Whoa, why would they freaking do that yeah. so by 16 I had an album out and then by 17 I'd, I had been discovered by a guy by the name of Glenn Edwards who was a DJ working at KECY radio he'd come to see me and asked me if I would be willing to work as a producer for him a company he had called Ibis Records an independent label and I said I, I don't really know what that means what do you want me to do and he said well I just want you to listen to the music and uh, make sure that the musicians are playing it the way you want them to play it and then we'll you know, put, put you together in a studio with an engineer and let's see how they come out and you're how old at this time uh 17 years old wow your album that you recorded was that with the same guys you were playing all along with you mean in high school yeah up until uh, the end of high school, I had the same guys. After that, I took the drummer with me to L.A. as a, we, we lived together to try to see if we could, you know, make it as musicians. But he, he later had to, to spell out because he, you know, he needed to earn money and he wasn't getting any work. But I continued on and produced records for this guy until uh, until the company you know shut down. So that's where I got started. And then Mike DeRoe was the engineer. We became friends and he said, hey, listen, why don't we team up and maybe produce some records together? So we we did and tried to get uh, talent, which we did. And then we produced another act. Uh, and then uh, after that, it was, it was getting tough to just make a living. Mike was having a hard time. I was having a hard time. I just needed to get some work. So he started training me to do engineering work. I began getting my skills as, as an editor, learning how to operate machines, helping with maintenance, alignments. And then uh, he got me a job working at Bob Ross Music, working as an engineer. 
and eventually just learned by experience how to operate the studio. And then Mike got a job working and building a studio for a couple of folks. You literally wired it up? Yes, Mike and I did. Wired it up from the mic and put panels into the console, into the preamps, lineups, out the faders, out the patch bay, into the tape machines, and through the speakers. It was quite an exciting thing to learn how to do. That's like you did it from the bottom up. I mean, that's as basic as it gets. I will tell you that when, as a young person, you know, still living at home with the opportunities that were beginning to come to me, 15, 16, I just had this desire that I wanted to learn the recording business all the way from the resistor up to the legalese. And, and what's happened in my life is exactly that. Yeah, so you're very hands-on, and you you have a, a knowledge, and you know, literally down to the resistor. Most musicians don't have that kind of feel for it, I'm sure. Well, most musicians are literally more right-brain oriented. You know, the perceptual, conceptual, and, and then you know, the nerds are more left-brain, and it's all technical and data and numbers, and everything fits together in a formula. I was cursed with having a little of both. So at times it almost feels like I have a schizophrenic brain where it doesn't know whether to be creative or intellectual or, or intellectual or creative, and sometimes it gets stuck in the middle. But uh, still, obviously, you've got both. It's not that you're lacking anything. You've got both sides. Well, I got both sides, but I, it would be nice if I had one whole instead of two halves. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always feeling a little half empty when it comes to the subject. But you were a producer at 17. That's unbelievable to me. Um, and you continue to explore that side of it as well. I did. Mike took me over to Sunset Sound and I uh, started working there, which is when I started doing sessions for A&M. Claudine Lachey came in and did some dates. Claudine um, Lachey. Oh, Yeah, you know, you know who that is? I sure do. Oh. Yeah, Andy, Andy Williams. She was married to Andy Williams at the time. A teenage dream of mine. Yeah, me too. And then, you know, at, at one point in time, David Crosby came in, and I, I said, so who is this? She says, David Crosby. And I went, Bing Crosby, son? <laughs> mm, I don't know, but I don't think so. <laughs> so I show up the next day, and I've got a mic set up, and he, he brought a songwriter in to do the demos, and so... When I got there, uh, a little ahead of time, he had come in and, and they had gave me a lamp. And they said they need to find a place to put this lamp in the control room. I said, well, what is it? And Gypsy says, I, I don't know what it is. You have to talk to David about that. So when he gets there, I go, I have this lamp uh, and I'm supposed to plug it in in the control room. He goes, yeah, that's right. I said, well, what is it? And he goes, it's a lava lamp. I never heard of it. I plugged it in and it started to get hot and sort of os osculate. Yes. <laughs> He said, now turn the lights down, turn them off, and we're going to just use that light. So we recorded about, I don't know, 10, 12 songs with this young woman he had brought in. And uh, I was absolutely amazed. I mean, it was the first time I had recorded somebody with just voice and guitar and actually songs for just great. First time I ever got any real pictures from lyrics. It was very inspiring to me to do this session. And when we got done, I asked who the producer was, and he said, well, David Crosby. I said, who's the artist? He's Joni Mitchell. Oh, wow. And I really was thrilled at being able to record her first demo. That was the demo she got the deal with A&M Records. 
it was an important lesson in my history as, as a producer. And when a person has got the gift, it's right there from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. You don't have to try and do anything other than capture it. This was the first artist I'd ever heard in my life that walked in who was young, who was looking for a deal, and it was right there. And then uh, subsequent to that is when uh, David said, hey, I've been working with this young guy who's an engineer to the Buffalo Springfield and said, you might want to consider working with him. So they put me on the date. And that's when I started working with the Buffalo Springfield. I engineered their second album. And then on the second album, or third album, I should say, uh, they were starting to make it and their bass player got busted. They needed to hire a bass player. And at the time, they didn't even know that I was a musician. And I got this opportunity, uh, I thought, that uh, maybe I could raise my hand and audition for the Springfield as their bass player, too. So when uh, it came time to audition, I went up and plugged in my bass. We went through, got about 10 bars, 12 bars into the first song, and Stephen looked at me like, wow, you know these parts. And um, I thought to myself, of course, I'd been working with you for a year and a half. Any, anybody with half a wit would have been listening <laughs> to these <laughs> arrangements. So they hired me because I knew all the tunes, and I was there, and it seemed like a good deal for everybody. So I, then I became their uh, bass player and engineer. And then somewhere in that period of time, I got a call from Ahmed Erdogan. He said he uh, wanted to ask me if, he, if I would consider producing the Buffalo Springfield. And I said, well, why me? And he goes, well, they seem to trust you, and uh, they, they need a producer, and they can't seem to find anybody, and they feel very comfortable working with you. So I took the job. So you're a member of the band and you're producing at the same time. Right. And that's uh, on the third album. That was the third album. The album needed to be done. You know, Neil was off doing what he was doing. Steven, you know, I would book the sessions for him to get him recorded. Uh, and the same thing for Richie, except with, with Richie, it was a lot more hands-on to get his music recorded, captured, and edited into that album. My focus was on producing an album, getting it done and delivering it. As I said, I went to Ahmed Erdogan at Atlantic Records. That was my job. And the so, album is called Last Time Around, which is very descriptive in this case. Yep, yep, yep. That was the last the album they made. And then you and move on to... Poco was the next step for me. Richie and I were actually in a taxi cab, and I asked him, I said, so what are you going to do after the band breaks up? Because I really don't know. Just, you know, he was pretty uh, frightened, I think. And I said, well, you know, you could always do something that's a little more country-oriented. I said, I I'd like to do something, and you know, I'd like to get back to playing guitar and not bass. But, uh, you know, perhaps we could do something instead of doing, you know, the folk rock thing, which is what we were really known for. I said, maybe we could, you know, we could add a country element, maybe do like a country rock thing. And so we talked about it, and, it was, and I hadn't finished doing the last time around album yet, so it was subsequent to the release of that album, Richie and I decided to become pards in the, in the Western nomenclature of things, and uh, began to try to put together uh, a band. And, and Poco eventually, eventually became Randy Meiser, Rusty Young, George Grantham, Richie Fure, and Jim Messina. And was that the first country rock band? Well... That's what they say, but the first country rock band in my mind was Buck Owens and the Buckaroos. <laughs> <laughs> I love Buck Owens and the Buckaroos, but um, in our genre, in our in our in our uh, what you might call in our generation, we were the first really who were exploring that. So I heard uh, there was a certain amount of frustration in the sense that you guys were too country for rock stations and too rock for country stations. 
and so you had some difficulty getting played. Yeah, that's exactly what we were told. You know, I mean, we would go out and even on tour and try to hit the radio stations. They would they would like the music, but they would say, you know, this is this is really too uh, country for you know our station to play. And then when we had the country stations, they would just say, "This is, you know, this is too rock and roll. This is not what we do." Uh huh. So we were, we just didn't, we couldn't get the airplay, and uh, we were just a little too ahead of the curve. That's I think, what I'm thinking. From, yeah, yeah. And you go a few years down the road in the '70s, and all of a sudden, country rock is definitely a thing. It's, it's definitely well, successful. And, and that's thanks to the Eagles because the Eagles were able to take it a step further and get songs that were more rock and roll and the voices to give it the sweet country harmony sounds. And Poco, uh, which is one of the reasons why I left, R Richie just wanted to focus on his his writing. And uh, I was trying to add a little bit there and with my writing and also in arrangements to make it flow in a, in a direction that in my mind felt like it needed to go. But it just wasn't moving in the right direction. And I, I think Richie, you know, bless his heart, he was frustrated because Stephen had become successful and Neil had become successful and he kind of felt like he was getting left behind and I think that created some anxiety and frustration. I mean, I, I know it did, which is one of the reasons why I had to leave. And, and when and did go. you leave? I left uh, October 31st, 1970. And when you left, what was your intention then? What, where did you think uh, you would be going in your career? Well, I, I was pretty between the Springfield and all the you know all of the chaos uh, and Poco and the frustrations. I just thought, you know what, maybe this band stuff is not something for me. In the summer of uh, 1970, I had made an appointment with Clive Davis to talk to him about the possibility of coming to work for them as an independent producer. And at that time, uh, I explained to Clive I was really tired of being on the road and and uh, I was just newly married. I lived three blocks from CBS, and I just felt like I had time to stay home and do some production work. So he and I chatted, and he said, look, why don't you get this album done with Poco? you got one more album to do, get it finished, you know, get yourself replaced, you know, leave in an amicable way so everybody's okay, and uh, we'll talk about it. So, you know, I finished the record, and uh, they chose Paul Cotton to replace me, and I said, listen, to make this easier for everybody, let's bring him out on the road, and I'll teach him the parts. So he and I shared a room, and uh, I taught him the parts that I was playing so that he would be familiar with the, with it. And uh, on October the 31st, 1970, at, at the Fillmore, he took over my position as guitarist. Mm -hmm. In uh, 1971, I started producing for CBS. Don Ellis had started working at CBS as a artist development for Clive Davis. And Don Ellis had approached me in the summer of 1970 with the idea of would I be willing to listen to the brother uh, of his friend Dan Loggins, uh, who was a singer-songwriter, and consider maybe producing him. So uh, I get a call from Loggins, and uh, he said, listen, I understand we might be able to get together and I could hear some of my music. And I said, yeah, that'd be great. I said, can you uh, bring some tapes and, and uh, we can sit down and listen to him? So he showed up for dinner at my house. So he walks in and, you know, I look at him and he's this really tall guy with his part in his hair and his jeans fit him like he had a load in him, you know, like they wear them today, a little too low, and a, and a beard. And I thought, oh my God, this is not what I had in mind. So he came in and we were chatting and they seemed to be, you know, very personal. I said, so can we listen to some, uh, some of your tapes? And he says, well, I don't have any tapes. I says, well, um, did you bring your guitar? And he says, I don't really own one. Wow. 
So I, at that moment, I kind of felt like, I don't know that I really want to be here, but I am, and it's my house. Yeah, right. <laughs> I went over to the uh, closet, and I pulled out a, a nylon guitar that I had in there that I spent time working on. And I said, tell you what, here you go. I got a tape machine set up right here. There's two mics. It's in stereo. Sit in the middle. Here's the guitar. Press that button when you're ready to co- record, and show me what you got. Well, what had he been doing, I mean, before this? I mean, how did they find him if he, if he didn't have a guitar and... and um, I mean, he didn't have tape. What what was he doing before he met with you? What he had been doing was working for ABC Dunhill as a staff songwriter, from what I understand. Oh, okay. You know, they needed a demo or a song or a song written for Elton John or whatever, because he has this incredible epigodal. He could twist his voice to sound like whoever he wanted to sound. Leon Russell or, you know, Elton John, he could do it. So he proceeded to record Danny's song, House of the Corner, a couple of other things. And so we had dinner and chatted that night, and he left, and I asked my wife, I asked her, what did she think? And she goes, wow, he's he's interesting. I said, yeah. I said, but, you know, what what am I going to do with him? I mean, most of these songs are folk songs. The folk thing is over. He had a wonderful voice and could do the blue-eyed soul, could do the country, could... You know, really had a grasp of music because he was a real music lover and appreciator. And was was, was willing to step out of this uh, folk thing, too, which was important. So the more I began to work with them, I had some songs that I was working on after Poco. And we had House at Corner, and we had Danny's song, which I felt if he was given the right material and the right opportunities, we could make a great album. So I cut a demo on the whole record. And once I had it, the arrangements, the way I wanted them, I took and cut it up and sequenced it like I would be releasing the record. And I turned that into Clive Davis. Clive loved the material. He said, but there's just one problem. He said, it sounds like you're playing on this thing an awful lot. And I said, well, I am. And uh, I said, you have to understand that Kenny's never never had a band or employed a band, and, and uh, he need, needed direction. He needed musicians that would listen to what was going on. And I said, I think the only way to have done that was to get in and be a part of this given what I just said. You know, he needs some help on this first tour. What I'd like to suggest is that I sit in with him on this album and go out with him on the first tour so that we can get things organized, get an agent, get his manager, get everything set up, and try to make this thing as successful as possible. Clive didn't like the idea at first because he said, you know, I've had too many bands that we've done an album and then the bands break up because they lose somebody. And I said, well, I understand that. I said, but it's much different than that. I said, I'm, I'm not going anywhere. I'm organizing this so that it will be as successful as it can. And I said, there's been plenty of times in history where artists have sat in with one another. I mean, Dan Getz, Charlie Burke, you know, Leon Russell, Bonnie and Delaney. Mm-hmm. It's not the first time this has happened, but it is an important time, I think, in which we need to consider to make this album a success. He reluctantly said yes, and the album eventually was released turned out it was selling like hotcakes and Clive came to me and said you know I'd like for you to consider staying with with Kenny because these kinds of things only happen once in a lifetime you're getting a lot of feedback very positive we're getting really good sales and I would just like you to consider this I said yeah but I got five other albums I got to make this year I I can't go out on the road and, and do this too and he said well you focus on getting a couple of albums made a year with Kenny and so I said, you know, I'll consider it. If, Kenny, if Kenny's willing, then that's fine. But the important thing that, you know, I need to say is that I came back here to be a producer, not to be an artist again. And if, as long as I'm producing the records and that's understood, then I'm happy to do that. And I had that conversation with Clive. 
but she was in agreement. I had this conversation with Kenny, which he said, hey, things are working. You know, let's, let's keep it the way it is. So that was pretty much the birth of a blog as a machine subsequent to the release of the first album. Which was called um, Sitting In with the idea being that you were sitting in, right? The idea was I was just sitting in as a guest artist and then would sit my ass out later. But uh, it didn't turn out that good. No. By the second <laughs> album, it, it was actually a duo and a very successful one. But it was also time for Kenny to... I mean, Kenny went into this thing thinking he was doing a solo record as a solo artist and really didn't plan on doing a duet. Neither did I. But it, it, it became clear after four or five years that he was beginning to grow and, and wanting another direction, working with other people, which uh, it's time. You know, it's time to do that. So this was kind of a, a mutual thing. You know, sometimes when we, we hear about groups breaking up, we think of it's acrimonious and all that stuff, and it doesn't sound like it. I felt it was time. In fact, I'm the one who brought it up. And I just didn't want to see this thing end with us getting into a you know, huge, dumb argument over something. And I was tired. I, I was having a difficult time digesting food. I had allergies all the time uh, it, and under a lot of stress. So I just think that uh, it was time for me take a break. I, I took three years to chill and find out who I was. The picture that I get from when you talk about when you first auditioned him was he was very raw, had no experience, seemed like a nice guy. How did he grow and change through that period? Kenny was in the beginning very, very eager to make his music and he was, he was, a, he was really a, a great partner. He worked hard. He, he just was one of these guys who was really, really eager to express himself and to be creative. We want to get more sophisticated as a vocalist. I think he was needing to be challenged more. If you look at him over the past 10 years, you know, he definitely got to the point where as a vocalist, he's a phenomenal vocalist. That's his thing. His vocal is his instrument. He was frustrated with where I wanted things to go and obviously where he was seeing things going. If you listen to the last album, Native Sons, his songs are extremely packed with instrumentation and vocals and stuff. And I just have a different philosophy about how music feels good to me. And not that it's right, not that it's wrong, but I like cutting things all at one time. All of the logs of Messina stuff was cut live. It all had the live performance feeling that we could then capture and take onto the road with the same musicians and the audiences with wow, get a chance to hear the music that they love, the way it was created and from whom created it. Kenny got to the point where he liked to overdub a lot when we got into the latter album. The music was starting to get crammed over arranged, I think, uh, and beginning to sound overproduced, which is not my style, becoming more and more his style. And because I was the producer, I was resisting some of this stuff. And I think that was creating anxiety for him. I know it was, you know, and I could see it. One of the reasons why it was, I thought it was time to go. As he went on in, in life, um, I, I didn't spend a lot of time with him, but he seemed to change, at least what I was hearing back from other people. Before, he was a little more kind and easygoing and playful. And um, as his voice became more sophisticated, so did he think his personality needed to become more sophisticated. And as he made more money, you know, he started to acquire desires for things that were expensive, sort of out of the normal price range for most people. And I felt myself moving in that direction at one point in time. And that's when I said, you know what? I got to get back to my roots and who I am and where I came from. That's why today I live in the country. I've got a dog. I got four cats, three jackasses, a bunch of chickens, <laughs> a horse. 
and, and I'm doing my own maintenance and fixing my fences and I'm cussing out every time I have to go out and do something I'd rather. But it's what keeps me balanced, keeps me rooted, keeps me in touch with my neighbors. Uh-huh. It, it makes me appreciate what a plumber does, what a carpenter does. You know, I do much of that stuff myself until I get to the point where it's over my head and then I call a pro in to do it, you know. I fix most of my electrical until it gets to the panel, and then that's when I call the electrician. But I think it's important. Most of my friends that I enjoy spending time with are pretty grounded and uh, rooted in what they do. Their families are important to them. You know, their lifestyle is not about living with a nouveau riche or going to the most expensive restaurants or staying at the most expensive hotels. It's about just living life and being part of the herd. I, I don't think Kenny lives that way anymore. I don't really know that much about him anymore. So I, I, I can't really tell you how much he's changed other than from when we stopped spending time together. He definitely has went in a different direction, both uh, musically and lifestyle. Whether it's been good for him or bad for him, I don't know. Now, you uh, left when? At the end of 1976. And then you kind of chilled out for, you said, a few years? Yeah, I came back and started recording again in 1979 with the release of the album called Oasis. Uh-huh. There's a song on your second album that I'm a big fan of. It's called Loving You Every Minute. I thought that was a great song. We are going to put putting that song into the set here. I'm, I'm working on getting a keyboard player to co- start coming out. And in fact, I was just thinking of that solo. It's been running through my head all morning. It's been stuck in my head all morning. So, so tell me, and you're you're still playing. Obviously, right now we're all stuck, but you've scheduled some things for what 2021 or something like that in terms of performances. Right now, we do have some dates on the books uh, beginning in January uh, 26th, I think. But, you know, again, it depends on it depends on whether we can get this virus under control. Absolutely. Because, uh, and all of a sudden, it's just all coughed right up again. I know. Well, listen, thank you. You've been very generous with your time, and I've really enjoyed talking with you, and I've learned a lot from talking to you, so I appreciate it. Well, thank you very much. Thanks to Jim Messina, and thank you for listening to RPM 45. We'll be back again with another hit artist from the 60s, 70s, or 80s next week.